0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from Psalms 91, 1 through 2. The word of God speaks to us He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is God's word to us. Thank you. Well, good morning. My name is Steve, and I am one of the pastors here at Frontline. It's really good to be together with you guys on this Father's Day. So, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Um, There's no substitute for committed, involved fathers. So, I'd like to encourage all you guys to hold the line and and be the fathers that, um, that God has called us to be. So we're going to be continuing uh, this morning in our uh, Rhythms of Grace uh, series that we started last week. Today we're going to be looking at the rhythm of prayer. So um, let's, uh, let's go before the Lord, ask Him to help us, and then we'll see what He has for us this morning. Well, Father, please help us as we look into Your Word today. Open our eyes and our hearts, Lord. Help me to speak with clarity, and Lord, help us all to hear from you. Change us, Lord. Make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in his his glorious name that we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, I know that when I say that we're going to be talking about prayer, that there's kind of a vague uneasiness that happens um, in some of us because we think, well, I'm really not very good at that. Uh, we have these images in our heads of what a prayer life should look like, and we're pretty sure that we don't measure up to it. Uh, we imagine an extended uh, quiet time in the morning where we um, struggle to focus to bring all of our needs before God and um, you know, quiet times are good. They, they are part of a rhythm of prayer. But what the Father is calling us to is much, much richer than just a quiet time in the morning. Listen again to that first verse of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So the psalmist talks there about dwelling and abiding or living in the shadow of the Almighty. Pastor Dave did a great job last week of of opening up uh, John chapter 15 to us where Jesus talks about abiding. He said, "'Abide in me and I in you, "'as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself "'unless it abides in the vine, "'neither can you unless you abide in me.'" So Jesus invites us three times in that single verse to abide or to live in Him. Is part of that abiding in Him actually talking to Him? Sure, but it's also Him talking to us, see? It's it's just like any other relationship that we have. If you and I have a good relationship, sometimes you talk, sometimes I talk, and sometimes we just sit there without the need for anybody to say anything. And that's a picture of the relationship that God is calling us into. See, we're being called into that kind of relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. So prayer is much more than just us bringing our laundry list of needs before God. Remember, he knows what we need before we ever ask him. So prayer is abiding or living in his presence. It's a rhythm of relationship with God. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians could say, pray without ceasing. He wasn't telling them never to come out of their prayer closets, but he was encouraging them to abide or to live in God's presence. So when I say prayer this morning, what I'm actually talking about is a -a 24-hour-a-day rhythm of relationship with the Father that is much more than just a quiet time in the morning. Coming back again to Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, the shadow of the Almighty. So let's talk for a minute about shadows. The word shadow has taken on sort of a negative connotation in our day, Um, sometimes when we use it, um, we're talking about brokenness, you know, the brokenness and maybe even the sinfulness in our lives. But... Um, that's really not how the Bible talks about shadow. Word shadow appears about 75 times in the Bible, and uh, many times uh, it, the, the word um, means the same thing or is used in the same way as it is in Psalm 91. Uh, Psalm 91 uses shadow as protection or shade. Anyone who grew up in the desert the way that I did knows that if you have just a little bit of shade, a little shadow, even if it's 110 degrees outside, you're okay. So what does it take to make a shadow? In order to have a shadow, you have to have light. If it's pitch dark, there are no shadows. So first you need light, and then you need something of substance that can cast its shadow. Now, in Psalm 91, that something of, of substance that's casting its shadow was actually a someone of substance. It's God himself. His shadow is providing shade. It's providing protection. Now, if we move to the New Testament and look at how the word shadow is used in the New Testament, we most often find it showing us the difference between things that are symbolic and temporary on one hand, and on the other hand, things that are ultimate And eternal. Hebrews 10.1 says this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. One of my favorite shadow pictures is of the planet Jupiter and the shadow of Io, one of its larger moons. So, what can we learn about Io from its shadow? Well, for one thing, we know where it is. It's actually between the Sun and Jupiter, because it's casting a shadow on Jupiter. We also know that Io is roughly round, because its shadow is round. And because we know the distance from the Sun to Io, and from Io to Jupiter, By measuring the size of its shadow, we can actually calculate the uh, size of Io. So there are several things that we can learn about Io just by looking at its shadow. But the shadow of Io is not Io. Io is much, much more glorious than its shadow. It may be the most interesting body in our solar system. It's certainly the most colorful. So I'm introducing you to Io and I/O shadow so that when we talk about prayer, see, that rhythm of relationship with God, we need to be able to distinguish between shadow and substance. Shadows are good and they tell us some things about the substance, but they're not the real thing. Remember a couple of months ago when we were in the book of Mark and um, we came to the place where Jesus and the disciples were just leaving the temple. And the, di- the, the disciples said, Master, look at these wonderful stones. See, they were impressed with the stones around them. And, and Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. See? Uh, Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. But the disciples were having a hard time discerning between substance and shadow. They were focused on the massive and what must have felt to them like eternal stones. The problem is that everything that had been going on in that impressive building, in the temple, for all those years, it was only a shadow. All the offerings, the sacrifices, all the rituals had pointed to Jesus. He was and is the sacrificial lamb of all time so that all of our sins could be forgiven. Jesus was the substance who was casting a shadow that was the entire temple system. The disciples were having trouble discerning shadow from substance. And believe it or not, we have the same challenge today. Let me give you one more example of uh, substance and shadow and then we'll look at some practical outworkings of this life of prayer, um, a rhythm of relationship with our Heavenly Father. So next Saturday at one o'clock in the afternoon, my wife Sandy and I will mark 50 years to the hour of the day that we were married. Okay. Thank you. So wedding was wedding was in Zion National Park Uh, June the 25th 1972 okay now my disclaimer here is that I wore those clothes exactly one time for the wedding and then I donated them so um, the day before we were married we were each baptized in the emerald pool in Zion by John the Baptist and Rudy the Baptist okay so that um, that was quite a weekend for us it set in motion Um, A life and a story with one another and with Jesus, one that we're still walking out after all these years. Now one of the things that we began to glimpse fairly early in our marriage and which has gotten clearer as we've walked on together is that our marriage is not primarily about us. Okay? Yes, God was and He is concerned for our happiness as a couple. But we knew somehow that what we were doing, what we were living out, was bigger than just us. In our marriage, we were demonstrating something about God's faithfulness and his love for people in the world. Fifth chapter of Ephesians, the apostle Paul describes the calling for husbands and wives. Husbands are called to love their wives like Christ loves his church and literally laid his life down for her. Wives are called to submit to and to honor their husbands in the same way that all of us are called to honor and submit to Jesus. Now, if we don't just read over the top of those verses, but we let their meaning really sink into us, it's going to either press us into Jesus or it's going to crush us. Trying to live out that Ephesians 5 calling without him is, is impossible. But then Paul sums it all up and he says something really interesting in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So did you hear what Paul just said there? This mystery of the marriage of a man and a woman is profound, but it's a shadow. Okay? The eternal substance is Christ and his church. It never was about us. The reality of the relationship between Jesus and his people casts a shadow called earthly marriage. And that shadow shows to us and to the rest of the world some of the characteristics of that other eternal relationship between Jesus and his bride, okay? So here at Frontline, we hold a high view Of marriage. We do premarital classes, uh, we do marriage mentoring, marriage counseling, but the marriage between a man and a woman is neither eternal nor is it ultimate. See, you don't have to be married in order to follow Jesus. You just don't. But what is ultimate and what is eternal is Jesus and his bride, the church. Now, all of us can look at this earthly relationship of marriage and learn some things about the rhythm of relationship that God is calling us as his bride into with him. So, with that in view, what are some of the things that we can learn about the rhythm of relationship between Jesus and his people? See, this rhythm of prayer by looking at earthly marriage. Number one there needs to be PDA, both kinds, okay? So I remember entering high school as a freshman, and one of the first things that we did is we had a freshman orientation where they gave us this little um, freshman orientation book that gave us all the rules that we were supposed to live by for the next four years. And one of the 15 or so things that were in that book um, is there will be no public display of affection between students. Okay? No hand-holding, no making out behind the gym. See? <laughs> um, thankfully, that didn't carry over into my marriage. Um, in fact, it became important that I did have public displays of affection for my bride. Um, I wasn't very good at it at first, um, but I've learned. I, what I was doing when I did that is I was taking a stand before the world saying, this is my wife and I am proud to be her husband. Of all the women in the world, I've chosen her and she has chosen me. Um, There's another kind of PDA also, which is private displays of affection. Now in the covenant of marriage, some of that is sexual, but every bit as important are the private displays of affection um, the notes that are passed between us, uh, the acts of kindness that we do for one another that no one else ever sees. Sometimes the only reason that those acts of kindness are important is because they mean so much to the one that's, that's receiving the kindness. Okay? Um, they're private. No, no one else ever gets to see that. And all that PDA in marriage is a shadow Of Jesus' relationship to us. Matthew writes, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Jesus was talking about prayer, but he was also talking about a highly relational private display of affection. No one else is a part of that relationship behind closed doors between you and your God. How about this verse? In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. See, that's a glimpse of Jesus' very private relationship with his Father, that, that private display of affection. And it's the relationship that we are invited into. Psalm 34, verse 8, David says this, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So tasting and seeing are so much more than just learning things about God. See, David was inviting us into a relational, experiential relationship with him, with Jesus. Taste and see. During Jesus' time on earth, he was also always making public displays of affection for the Father. His message to everyone that he encountered was that the Father loves them and is drawing them back To himself. Then there were times when the Father showed public displays of affection for Jesus, like when Jesus was baptized and the Father spoke to everyone present, saying, this is my beloved Son. I'm so pleased with him. See? Well, we're also called into public displays of affection for the Lord, sharing the good news, the gospel, with those around us. That's actually a public display of affection for Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if, if we're ashamed to publicly display our affection for Jesus, I really question whether we have understood at a heart level the love that he has for us when it impacts you, that he left the 99 who were doing fine in the field to come after you, see, to come after each of us. Um, And what it cost him to do that, see, that will stir a flood of affection and gratitude from us towards him. Publicly and privately, you want to express affection back to him. And if that picture doesn't move you deeply this morning, ask him to help you to grasp at a heart level what it cost him to retrieve you from the briars, the brambles, and the wolves, okay? When we understand that, it will deeply stir our affections for him. Number two, date night is important. So when Sandy and I were first married, there was a Mexican restaurant in Las Vegas called Macayo Vegas, and um, we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, we lived in a school bus in the KOA campground, you know, uh, but we discovered that by each of us ordering a bowl of albondigas soup, each getting a Coke, and each eating the free chips that they provided for us, we could have date night for five bucks, Okay. <laughs> Um, As our kids grew and reached their teens, date night became even more important for us. As we sat there, um, we could take a a collective deep breath. We could look into one another's eyes and we could remember that before we were mom and dad, before um, we were people who ministered to other people, before we were business owners, before we were anything else that tries to name us all the time, she was my wife and I was her husband. See, we could recenter in our relationship with one another. That's a shadow of what we're called into in our relationship with the Lord. Mark tells us in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Luke says, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. See, we need to make a habit of slipping away to the wilderness with the Lord, whatever that looks like for you. To pour out to him all that has built up inside us, yes, but also to hear back from him, to be comforted and encouraged by him, sometimes um, to get new direction for our lives. So date night is important in our marriages and in our relationships with God. So let me just say here that, that building a relationship with someone that we have never seen with our eyes and heard with our ears um, is a little bit challenging. It really is. Now, there's going to come a day when we will, we will experience him with all of our senses. But that day is not today. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that we see God like a dim reflection in a bad mirror. We're a lot better at hearing with our ears and seeing with our natural eyes than we are with hearing that still small voice of God. But just like any form of physical exercise, the only way we're going to get better is by doing it. See, the best time to have planted an oak tree was 35 years ago. The second best time is today. So let's do this. Number three. Relationship-building is costly business. After I married Sandy, I was shocked to find out how different we were. I mean fundamentally different, (laughs) not just a little bit. We were both human, Um, but beyond that, (laughs) we each saw life very, very differently than the other one. Um, Looking back to before we were married, I think that I thought that I was going to be marrying a much more attractive version of myself, okay? I thought that's what it would be. Instead, it was more like a dog learning to relate to a cat. Um, We were were really different. Uh, Words that I would use regularly with one of my friends, if I used them with her, would cause her to cry. And she kept asking me how I felt emotionally about things. Who knows how I felt emotionally? I didn't know how I felt emotionally. It hadn't even occurred to me that I ought to know how I felt emotionally. Um, But we both embarked on a journey of learning to speak the other's language. So she was learning to speak Steve and I was learning to speak Sandy. So whenever I got ready to say something to her, the first thing that I would do is translate from my mother tongue in my head into her language so that what I would say would actually connect with her. And she did the same with me. It's taken us a long time to even get marginally um, proficient at this and, and fluent. Um, relationship building in marriage is hard work. But again, that's just a shadow of our relationship with, to God. Isaiah wrote, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So I have a friend who was struggling with his relationship with the Lord, primarily because his ways were so different than God's ways. It was really slow going, and he was getting frustrated with the whole process, so one day, while he was praying, he felt like the Lord broke into that and said, You know what? You and I are incompatible, and I don't change. See? It's us that gets to do the changing in this relationship. So relationship building is hard work, even in this, relation, in this rhythm of prayer, this rhythm of relationship with God. So there are many other tools that I could talk about uh, this morning that would be helpful in in, strengthening and building this rhythm of relationship with God that's called prayer. Um, We could talk about things like persistent intercession or prayers of worship and praise, um, just sitting quietly before God and waiting on him. But for the sake of time, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you two more that have been especially important uh, and helpful to me. So number four, build yourself up praying in the Holy Spirit. So a month ago in our series in Jude, we read, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. So what did Jude mean by building yourselves up Praying in the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes my prayer life feels a lot like that game that we used to play as kids, hot and cold. Um, As I pray, sometimes it feels like I'm not really connecting with God's heart, really lining up with what he's doing. You know, you're getting colder, you know. Um, But then as I keep at it, See, I keep, so I just stay in his presence and continue to pray. I find that somehow my prayer is beginning to align with what's on his heart and the things that are close to his heart. Sometimes it takes a while in his presence for that to happen, but I realize I'm getting warmer. See? Well, Jude is calling us to so align our hearts with his that we're actually praying in the Holy Spirit the Spirit is leading us as we pray. But sometimes, after a while of praying like this, I run out of words, see? I don't want to just be repetitive and say all the same stuff over again, uh, but I can also sense that there's more that I need to pray. See, the words to express my heart, my command of the English language is now failing me. So this is when I can shift into prayer overdrive. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit described in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is the gift of speaking in tongues. The Apostle Paul identifies this as praying in the Spirit and explains at length uh, the gift and its use in the life of a believer. So I'd encourage you to read those three chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Paul explains there that when a person is praying in tongues, that person is praying mysteries to God. The one praying gets built up, and God is actually giving him prayers to pray, sometimes in a recognizable foreign language and other times in a heavenly one. Then Paul ends the discussion saying this, I thank God that I pray in tongues more than all of you, which could mean that he prayed in tongues more than anybody else in that church, or it could mean that he prayed in tongues more than everybody else in that church. Um, Either way, um, praying in the Spirit was an especially important thing for the Apostle Paul. It's been pivotal in my life, too. When I get stuck for what to pray, see, I can switch to that heavenly language and continue on, knowing um, that I'm bypassing my understanding and I'm going spirit to spirit with God, confident that what needs to be prayed over is getting prayed for. I get built up, and God prays these perfect prayers through me. Gift of speaking in tongues has been key in my hour-to-hour and day-to-day rhythm of relationship with Jesus. Lastly, number five, guard your gates and only let your friends in. Um, The cities of Jesus' time were walled cities. The city of Jerusalem had, um, had eight gates in the walls, The gates kept the enemies out, and it kept the people safe. Now, each of us also has gates, and two of our gates are our eyes and our ears. The Apostle Paul addresses this in Philippians 4 when he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, those are the things that you want to let in your gates. Now, some of my friends that I let in my gates are the biographies of men and women of God who have gone before me. See, if God took ordinary people like those people, ordinary, busted up, broken people just like us, and he used them, hey, maybe there's hope for us too, you know? One of the the ways that I man my gates is I let my friends in, that which is true, honorable, and pure, because they build me up. Paul actually says that if these are the friends we let through our gates, then the God of peace will be with us. See, that's the rest of that verse. On the other hand, I also need to man my gates to keep the enemies out. Fear, doubt, confusion, and a host of other things they'll try to slip through in what I read, in what I watch on TV, see what I let through my gates. Now, I'm not advocating for a diet of only VeggieTales and the first two seasons of Chosen, okay? I'm not doing that. There are lots of other things that also pass that uh, Philippians chapter four test that'll help to build you up and not tear you down. So I have to be very careful about how I engage the 24-hour news cycle. See, you can choose your poison, be it Fox News or MSNBC, doesn't matter. If I have a steady diet of either, it will leave me despairing and hopeless. Now, I want to know what's going on in the world, see, partly so that I can bring those things into that rhythm of relationship that's called prayer with the Father, and also so that I know how to relate to the world. So, so I don't know about you, but for me, it's better for me to read the news because I can easily shut my gates on it. Whereas sometimes when I'm watching and engaging it with my ears and my eyes, um, it's, it's harder for me to do that. So that's, that's just me. Uh, 2 Kings 6 tells a story of, of Elisha and his young servant. They found themselves surrounded by the Syrian army whose goal it was to eliminate Elisha. The young serpent became afraid and Elisha prayed for him that his eyes would be opened. And suddenly the young man saw that all around them were the chariots of fire and the army of God. See, those that were, that were protecting them were much bigger than those that were arrayed against them. Reminding ourselves that he that is in us is, is greater than he that is in the world is, is important to maintain that ongoing rhythm of relationship with the Father. The 24-hour news cycle will not help you with that, okay? Well, as I close today, I think that a problem for us is that we really don't grasp how much God desires relationship with us. Um, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, the first man and the first woman were created into a rhythm of relationship with God that we can only imagine. See, we can only imagine that. We, we have no idea what that was really like. They lived in a paradise of unlimited yeses and only one no. But they rebelled, and when they did, all of creation descended into darkness And into chaos. In chapter three, judgment for their disobedience falls on them, first on the woman and then on the man. And then what happens next? See, they were banished from the garden, right? No, that's not what happens next. What happens next was that while they were still in the garden, they were standing there, naked, ashamed, fallen, and broken. God clothed them. See, he clothed them. That simple act speaks so much to us of his desire for relationship with us. See, that was a very, very long shadow cast by what Jesus would do on the cross thousands of years later. He so desires relationship with us that Jesus laid aside his glory his role as the architect of everything to become a man, a poor man. See, a man who is despised and and fully acquainted with suffering. One who would endure beating, mocking, Roman crucifixion, and death. But the best news of all time is that death wasn't strong enough to hold him, and three days later, he rose from the grave. See? But this time, it wasn't to clothe us with animal skins. It was to clothe us with the righteousness that had always been his, see? So the question for each of us today is, are we willing to surrender to that love and to be brought in to this 24-hour-a-day rhythm of relationship with him?